All right, let's take our Bibles this morning and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, and it's, it is always good for you to take your own the uh, Word of God, whether you have it in paper form or electronic form. Uh, you probably don't have it in memory form, so you have to look at something and examine something and see it, uh, so you start uh, following along with your own Bible. All right, so that's always important to do that. This morning we're going to look at chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. I mentioned last time that there's an, there was an unfortunate break in the chapters of Ephesians between chapter 1 and 2, and the reason why, because it continues if you look at the end of chapter 1 in verse 23, it says, Which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And then in chapter 2, verse 1, and you don't cut a sentence off in the middle, do you? Uh, it continues on, and it says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. So, see, the word of God is telling us here, or showing us here that, listen, Scripture is still talking about the power of God. And I said that before he can really grasp the greatness of God's power in salvation, in your own salvation, we must see the depth to which we sunk in our sin and the enormity and the destruction of the power of sin uh, in our life. So our position before God in sin was so dangerous and so hazardous that man on the inside is full of corruption and death. Man on the outside with his fellow human beings is engaged in combat. And of course, with God, his creator, he is at enmity and under God's wrath. So the entrance of sin into the world, into humanity, into the human race has wrecked havoc everywhere from the inside of us outward into every institution, every government, and everything that there is, sin has wrecked. What, what power is going to rescue us from that predicament well no power but God's no one can raise the spiritually dead only God can do that and only when we see what we once were without Christ that's verse number one through three I covered last time can we more fully understand what God has done for you and for me, by his grace and his mercy and his power in Christ. See, just as scripture wanted us to understand our position before God in sin and the characteristics that permeated our lives when we were outside of Christ. That is, before God began to work on us, before God began to act upon us with resurrection power, and again, 
what you and I once were pre-conversion. We didn't always know Christ. Even if you were born in a Christian family, you, di- you, weren't, you didn't always know Christ. You were born a sinner in a pre-conversion state. You were in rebellion against God. Uh, and so therefore, you didn't know him in the sense of knowing him as your Lord and Savior. And what, we, what were we then? We were unbelievers. We were not Christian in the biblical sense of the word. We were outside of Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3, described us quite clearly and quite emphatically, and it showed us as we really were, or as we really are, outside of Christ. You know, we were this, that the man who is not a Christian is a person who is dead in trespasses and sins. He's being led about according to the course of this world, according to the prince and the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience, that his manner of life was in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and he was under the wrath of God by nature. That's who you and I were. All of us were there, every single one of us. And we, t- we need to know where we came from. We need to be reminded about that every day, but not stay there. Right? Being a Christian is not just being forgiven of your sins. It's knowing these things. That now in our passage of Scripture, today it wants us to do the same thing. It wants us, Scripture is pushing us, wanting us to understand our new position in Christ what we are after God began to act upon us in resurrection power. In other words, what you are now, post-conversion. And you may ask this too, are you this? Have you had this post-conversion understanding of where you were and now where you are? So see, the title of my message is, what we were now in Christ, or what we are now in Christ. Right now, right now in your life, the Bible's talking about right now. We could have no wondrous relationship to Christ unless we were raised to our new position by God's saving grace in Christ. So see, you and I, we must be often reminded of what we once were and what God has now made us to be. So the position of the Christian is the exact opposite of the person who is not a Christian. You're not the same. You're not what you used to be in Christ. Your new life in Christ becomes clearer when it is contrasted with who you were, what you are now, and then finally, in verse 7 through 10, what you shall be. Remember, a contrast is when you put something up alongside of something else and compare it, and then you notice and identify the differences. See, that's what it is. And so, that you can't see that your Christian life is 
different. It's supposed to look like something else because God's been working on you with his resurrection power that you're a new creation in Christ Jesus and old things have passed away and all things have become new. And so you and I are completely different than we were. See, that's the difference Christ makes in someone's life. And so the word of God wants us to see that. So please take note this morning that there are at least three differences than the way you and I were before. And here's the first one found in verse number 4 of chapter 2, and it says this, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, the first one is that our new position right now in salvation is by the rich mercy and the great love of God. You know, in verse number 3 of chapter 2, the Bible ended there that we were by nature children of that wrath, even as the wrath. So, you see, our predicament without Christ was that we were objects of God's wrath. And due to our failure to live up To the standard of God's holiness, we were under God's wrath. And upon our death, we would have been justly condemned to an eternity in hell. And this is describing the predicament of all of mankind, every human being. That means the human condition, apart from the gospel, is in constant rebellion against God himself. And the tragedy, of course, of all this is not only the reality of of the punishment for sin, which is, is, uh, of course, hell, but the fact that humans are helpless to do anything about it. People without Christ are left under God's justice. The debt of sin, according to Scripture, is so great, we could never pay it off. That's why hell is an eternity. And see, all people receive either justice from God or mercy from God. If they receive Christ, they receive mercy. If if not, if they don't receive Christ, they receive justice. So justice means that people get quite correctly what they deserve in light of what they have done in their sins and in light of how they have rebelled against the knowledge that is available to them by their conscience and by creation. So God, remember, will be, he will not be a God who's unjust to anyone. He is a God of justice. So justice will come with what people do with, with and how people respond to God's natural revelation and mercy or justice will come with what people do with and what and how people respond to God's special revelation. Of course, the special revelation is salvation in Jesus Christ alone. That's what God specially does. So, so this brings us in Scripture, in verse number 4, to the two most magnificent words in all of Scripture. And if I want, I want you to notice in chapter 2, in verse number 4, here's the first two words of the verse. But God, but God, see, we were under the wrath of God, but God enters in 
and he does something. In fact, in the Greek, it's three words. It's odetheos, which means but the God. The definite article is left in the Greek. It's assumed usually when they translate. So the definite article is used as if it is saying, make no mistake about the God I'm speaking about. It is the God who has the power to raise the dead. It is the God who has Christ seated at his right hand in power and who has positioned him in the heavenlies above every kind of authority that exists. His position is higher and greater than anything else, than any other power imagined, whether it be hostile or friendly, in this age and the age to come. See, but to us who were under the wrath of God, it is needed that we know something about the character of God. The character of this God. Isn't it the most wonderful thing to know that there's words like, but God in Scripture? Here we need to know something about what God has done, about who God is in His character. And unless God told us about it, we wouldn't even know it. So in fact, our text, this Lord's Day, is about God. Who He is and what He has done for us. Because what you are is based on who God is and what God has done. So two significant characteristics about our awesome God is is recorded in verse number four. And if you notice what it says, here's the first one, that God is rich in mercy. But God being rich in mercy, if justice means people will get quite accurately what they deserve from God, that is either justice or wrath, wouldn't it be wonderful to find out that God was rich in mercy? Wouldn't that be sweet music to our ears when we realize from Scripture that God's a merciful God? And that mercy means that God will not give you what you do deserve? And what you do deserve, what I do deserve, is God's justice and God's wrath. And the term mercy brings to mind really several synonyms. It brings to mind the word clemency or, and, or compassion and the word pity. So mercy really indicates the emotion aroused by someone in need and the attempt to relieve the person and remove its trouble. And of course, God is, is moved in his mercy to meet our need. The need of people who are dead in their trespasses and sin. The need of people who are blinded and cannot see. The need of people who are led by the world and under the dominion of Satan and are just controlled by the desires and passions of their flesh. See, God saw us in that condition and he moved. He had mercy on us. And another place in scripture, it tells us in Titus chapter 3 and verse number 5, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy. He saved us according to his mercy. You know, in the Old Testament, when King David sinned and committed adultery and murder, his, the penalty for those crimes in Scripture was death. But Nathan the prophet 
God sent Nathan the prophet to David, and Nathan exposed David's sins, and then God told Nathan to tell David, but I've forgiven you. So that means you're not going to die. I've forgiven you. And David appeals to God and comes to God based on something he knows about his character. And so what happens in Psalm chapter 51, when David writes this psalm explaining and showing how he understood himself, how he understood God, but the thing that caused David to run to God was not his justice, was not his wrath. That would cause us to run away from God. The thing that caused him to run to God was his mercy. In fact, if you'd like to turn there, it would be good for you to do that. In the King James Bible, uh, it says, have mercy upon me. That's how it starts off. Psalm 51, verse 1 through 4. In the New American Standard, it uses a different word, another word to describe mercy, and it's the word to be gracious. So this is how the psalm goes in Psalm 51, verse 1. When Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba, he said this, Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion. That's the, that's the feeling, the loving, compassionate feeling God had toward David. And then he says this, Blot out my transgressions, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me against you and and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. So it was the mercy of God that caused David in his sin as the king. His sin should should have been judged and he should have been condemned to death. But God's mercy stepped in And so he ran to God because he knew he was merciful. See, it tells us something more about God's mercy in our text in Ephesians 2.4. It says God's mercy, it says God being rich in mercy. That That means that he has a lot of it, that he doesn't run out of it, that there's enough available for everyone who comes to him, everyone who runs to Christ for his mercy it's available. He's never going to run out of it. He is so rich, it's overflowing. It's, it's abundant. It will never run out. So the term mercy shows us, again, this time to help us to understand the impossibility of borning, being born again without it. It's impossible to be born again without God's mercy. Think for a moment about your physical birth. You didn't decide to be born. You didn't decide when to be born. You didn't decide where to be born. You didn't decide what race you would be. You didn't decide what sex you would be. You didn't decide what your eye color would be. You didn't decide anything with regard to your physical birth, and you played no part in it except that you experienced it. You were born. Your birth happened to you. Well, if you just turn to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, I want you to see this, especially in light of this 
this point on mercy that just as you had nothing to do with being born, so you have nothing to do with being born again. In 1 Peter chapter 1, in verse number 3, it says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That means that God, in His mercy, needs to cause you to be born again if you are going to be born again. Just as God caused you to be physically born, so God must cause you to be born spiritually. And just as you could not determine your physical birth, so you cannot determine your spiritual birth. Only God, by His power, can do that. You could never do that on your own. There's nothing you can do to produce that. So, the point being is that it was the compassionate mercy of God that moved him to seek you and cause you to be born again. See, that's who we are now. But if you go back to Ephesians chapter 4, I mean chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 4, you'll find that as we continue the verse, there's a second characteristic that the author brings out, a second awesome characteristic about our God, and that is simply this, that God is a God of great love. It says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, that Jesus can take no rest as long as a soul for whom he shed his blood still abides under the dominion of Satan and under the power of sin. See, we need to be glad and happy of heart that Jesus receives sinner, sinners not only in his, his mercy, but is moved by his love. That God's love is not because we are worthy or could have been worthy, not even as some think because he sees some possibility unrealized in us. See, God's love, God loves us although he knows full well our complete unworthiness, our ungodliness. He knows that at best our unrighteousness is as filthy rags, yet he still loves us. His love, moreover, without thought of advantage, toward us for he for there's nothing we really can bring him uh, to make him love us he loves because it is his nature to love he loves because he is love that god's love is a love that costs and of course it is an active love a love that is revealed most specifically when christ died on the cross. In fact, it, it is such a great love that it is hard for us to understand it. In fact, if you look over to Ephesians chapter 3 and notice in verse number 17, he gets to something in verse 17 and he says this. He says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love 
may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. That the love of God is so great and that's what he uses in verse number four that we can't even understand it fully. We can't know the depth of it. So you see, God's love is displayed in Christ's greatest act of love. As soon as you communicate the true meaning of God's message of the cross, it is at the cross that Jesus Christ demonstrates his great love towards sinners. He, he gives himself up for it. In fact, it's in Romans 5, 8 that you get these two wonderful words again. In Romans chapter 5, verse number 8, it says, But God demonstrates his love toward us, even that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. See, so when, when sinners are acted upon by God's power, and they see that they're lost, under the wrath of God, in trouble with God, only then can they, they really see their need of the cross. And only then could they desire to receive Jesus Christ as their own Lord and Savior. They will no longer settle for their own righteousness because they realize their righteousness can't do anything, but they must settle for another's righteousness. That is a righteousness that comes to them from the perfect Lamb of God who died in their place on the cross. It's a righteousness that Paul speaks of in, in 2 Corinthians so that he may become the righteousness of of God, that Christ takes our sin, he nails it to the cross, and he, on our account, gives us his righteousness. So our debt is clean. When God the Father sees us, he no longer sees our sin, he sees the righteousness of his own, of his own son upon our account. See, why is that? It's because of the great love of God. It's because of the rich mercy of God that has been displayed to us. See, see, you are what you are by God's great love. You are what you are by God's rich mercy. And nothing else, nothing else could move you from what you were to what you are unless it was God who was doing it. The next difference of what we are now is found in verse 9 of Ephesians chapter 2. And here in verse number 5, we see the mercy, God's mercy displayed and meet up with God's grace where it says, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved. In other words, that while we're dead in our sins, we were separated from God. So it goes from being separated from God to being connected with God. And so he says, even when we were dead in our transgression. So see, sin brings separation. Essentially, death is separation. That physical death separates the body from the soul. Spiritual death brings a separation from God the Creator. And because this separation, because of the separation, man's really devoid of life. He's empty, he's, he has no purpose, he's lonely, 
He wanders around. Man tries to remove this separation between him as a human being and God as the creator. And he tries to fulfill it with all kinds of other things, but without success. He's still left empty, purposeless, and lonely, and a bunch of other things that are going on there. And so here's the point of contrast. That a second thing is this, that our new position right now in salvation is unto life that we were separated from god now we are connected to god you are not a christian unless you are connected to god unless you are joined to christ and while you and i live in our lived in our trans uh, trespasses and sins and we rebelled against God, but now we are, and we're, we were disconnected to Christ. We had no connection to Christ at all except Him being judge. Now we, of course, are connected to Christ. There's no longer a separation. Theologians describe this as being in union with Christ. Because of what? Because of His mercy because of his great love, because where that brought him to was the cross. And so therefore, now in Christ, we are brought into a union with Christ we never had before. And then it says in this passage that we were brought from being in a dead condition and now we're alive. It says he made us alive together with Christ. You know, in Scripture, in the, at least in the Greek text, this is in the aorist tense of the verb. That means that God has done, has done so already. That it's telling us here that he already made us alive together with himself. It is complete. Once and for all, it has already been done. And what has been complete? Well, God has made us spiritually alive. That we were dead to him. God performed spiritual resurrection by the power of His Spirit using the Word of God, and now we are alive to Christ. We have eternal life the moment we believe in Jesus Christ. And it's all because of Him. That the, the life of man means the existence of man as it ought to exist. And that is in union with God. And if we're in union with God, then there are certain consequences to that. Holiness, purity of life, even, even spiritual health and happiness, that man as God intended him to be is a man enjoying life in Christ. But man in sin, men, men and people as sin make them, then man is abiding in death. He is unhappy, he is disconnected, he has no purpose in life, and therefore he dies in fear because he has no, no idea what's next. See, but that's not a believer. That's the way you and I used to be, but no longer. Something happened to us. We're alive. That Christ has taken upon him our nature. That Christ has taken upon himself our sin. That Christ has gone to the place of punishment on our behalf. And the wrath of God has been poured out upon Christ for you and I, who know Christ. So because of that, we're, we're made alive. We're We're transferred from death to life. In fact, in our passage, if you notice what it says in verse number 5, he made us alive together with Christ. That great word together. What has happened to Christ has happened to you and me. That's why when you read Scripture, 
When Christ died, you died. When Christ was risen, you were risen. I was risen. That means that Christ is no longer in the tomb. He's no longer in the grave. He no longer has to go back that way, and neither are we. We don't go back that way. We keep going and walking in life, in resurrection life, not only now, but of course we have the hope of a resurrected body someday. So what happened to Christ has happened to you and me, and now we share his life, and we have come to the end of our death. We are no longer dead in trespasses and sins. We are no longer dead spiritually. We are born again. Another way of saying that is we're regenerated, right? Actually, the word regenerated can also be translated born again it's it's the same word in in scripture used in different ways see regeneration is the act of god by which a new principle of life is implanted in you a new governing disposition of the soul is made in you to make you holy to desire god to live for god there is a new power working in us and directing our members that we did not have before. I love, this probably one of my first favorite passages of scriptures in Galatians 2.20, where it says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life I now live, right now, in the flesh, right now on this earth, I live by faith of the Son of God, who loved me, and gave himself up for me. You know, Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain means more of Christ. To die means more of Christ. So see, that's what it means to be a believer. That's what it means to be regenerated. We come into this new life, into this new position that we were never in before. And how do we do in verse number five? By grace you have been saved perfect tense that means it points to a completed action with a a continuing result thus emphasizing the continual state and condition of a believer see once god has given you his grace he cannot take it back from you god is not an indian giver he is a god once he gives it to you everything is behind it for you to keep it see grace means God giving you what you do not deserve. And what don't you deserve? You don't deserve his forgiveness. You don't deserve his forgiveness based on Christ's substitutionary sacrifice. You and I would never deserve that. See, the term grace means, actually the essence of grace is that it's free. It's a gift. A free gift is something that cannot be earned that which no man can claim as his own right, that which cannot be bought, that which cannot be worked for. That's what God's grace is. So God is giving you something that you do not deserve. Grace is unmerited favor, the kindness shown to someone who does not deserve the kindness of God. It's grace is mercy shown to someone who doesn't deserve the mercy of god see it is a gift a free gift of god to people who are utterly undeserving of it see this is who you are now you're in a state of 
life, not death. You are in a state of God's mercy and grace, not God's wrath. This is who you are now. This should produce within us a great joy, a great time of worship when we understand these particular truths. But there is a, a third difference, and it's a difference that our new position right now in salvation is unto exaltation. In verse number 6 of Ephesians chapter 2, it says, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Really, this has to do with the power of God. That you are what you are by God's saving, sustaining grace. That you are what you are by God's great love. That you are what you are by God's rich mercy. That you are what you are by God's sustaining, saving grace. And nothing less than that. So our new position now is to be raised up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So we are raised to life. We are not left in the graveyard. We're not left with grave clothes on. If someone raises from the grave and they're wrapped in grave clothes, grave clothes, what what do they tell the people after Lazarus was resurrected? Take off his clothes. Take off the grave. Unwrap them. Why? He's alive. He doesn't need those grave clothes anymore. See, we we have been rescued from spiritual death and given spiritual life. We have been raised and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Now, heavenly places means that we have been taken out of the sphere where Satan rules. And we have been placed in the sphere that God rules. We have been removed from one sphere to another sphere. We're no longer in both spheres. We are actually taken out of one into the other. In fact, the Bible says that we're seated. He seated us, stressing the the absoluteness of his promise by speaking of it as if it had already fully taken place, that we're already there in heaven, seated with God. But on, on, well, fortunately, and or you could say unfortunately too, that God left us here after he saved us, right? So we're still here in these bodies. We're still on this earth. We still have to deal with things. But I want to explain something at this particular point. However, while I am alive to God, I am dead to other things. I am dead to the law's condemnation and sting. The law can no longer condemn me anymore. I also am dead to the wrath of God. The wrath of God cannot overcome me anymore. I am not under it anymore. You're not under it who know Christ anymore. And so it also says that I am dead to sin. Now, that needs some explanation. You're dead to sin. Being dead to sin does not mean that we are perfect. It does not mean that we are without sin or we shall never sin again. What it means is that we no longer belong to the realm of sin. wherein we were dominated by sin and under its power and governed in various ways by its lust and all the desires of the flesh. 
It means that we have been removed from that into a sphere where God rules. Now, if we or anyone else is to be rescued out of the power domain of darkness, it requires a power that is greater than the power which the rescue is taking place. Somebody has to be more powerful than sin and death and the power of the flesh and the course of the world and the power of Satan. Somebody has to be more powerful than that to rescue you. And of course, we know who that is already. Christ is the one who rescues us. So the power domain is, is the characteristic and the ruling principle of a particular region which unbelievers dwell before conversion to Christ. A power domain where everyone is wholly within the grip and absolutely subject to it and help us to gain their own escape or release. In that domain, in that particular domain, the love of darkness abounds. That means Christ says, or John says in the Gospel of John, men love darkness rather than light, meaning what? They love their sin. They love the cravings of the flesh. They love to fulfill their desires. They, they love that. And of course, not knowing what they love is actually enslaving them and keeping them in darkness that they think they're doing all right, but they're really not, and they're in darkness, they don't see the light, and so the devil wants to keep them in the dark and ignorant of the light of the gospel. So in that realm, the love of darkness abounds. In that realm also, hatred abounds towards God and towards his people. Hating one's brother, it says in 1 John, is walking in darkness, and this is what it says, but the one who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So in that realm that we have been rescued from is a place where hatred abounds towards God and towards his people. But in that realm too, no fellowship with God takes place. People can be involved with all kinds of religions, they can be involved with all kinds of rituals, all kinds of purity things and holiness things and all kinds of things they can imagine in their mind for somehow getting to God. But in that place, in that realm where Satan rules, no fellowship with the true and living God takes place. That's why in 1 John, John says, if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness we lie and do not practice the truth. We lie. And you know what? We're good liars to ourselves. We like to lie to ourselves. And we're good at it. So darkness is ungodliness. Darkness is opposition to God. It's estrangement from God. It includes all the dreadful evils of that particular realm which are involved which involve the evil state of the mind and the heart, the power of sin, the tyranny of error, the slavery of corruption. These things are everywhere in our world and are characteristic of human nature and existence. Wherever you go, you'll find them. Because the human being who is dead in sin with a wicked heart is there. 
but they don't realize they're in darkness and they cannot rescue themselves and that's where you and I were but no longer we are no longer in that sphere we are what we are by God's rich mercy by God's great love by God's saving sustaining grace and you are what you are by God's great power to transfer you from one dark realm to the realm of light I love what it says in Acts 26 verse 18 to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to the light and from the dominion here it is the realm of Satan to the realm of God and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me that's who we are God's taken us from that realm and he is putting he put us in the heavenly realm and in that realm the lights go on it's light so you see why you see your sin so quickly now you see why you have conviction of sin so so uh readily now in your life is because you're in the light you're in the realm that god's transferred you to and so therefore in that realm the light is exposing everything all the flaws come to light all the sins the deep in the deep recesses of your heart come to light they come to the surface and god exposes them to you and thank the lord he doesn't do it all at once he trickles them in there he allows you to have victory over one sin over another sin and see, if you, as a believer, are picturing yourself in this new realm, which you ought to be doing, because that's where you are now, that our great God has moved his children from the spiritual graveyard where Satan rules, where fleshly desires and cravings dominate and enslave, and where the world system constantly changing with his confusing messages... And he has moved us to the heavenly realm where our good and merciful and gracious and loving God rules with all power and authority both now and forever. And that's where you and I live. That's where you and I live. So see, all those things that Satan still wants to keep you down with, all those sins that you think you cannot come overcome as a believer, you can because either you're going to believe his lie, you're going to be the truth, believe the truth, right? Or you're going to believe your own lie, or you're going to believe the truth. And the truth is, a transfer has taken place. You have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And so therefore, everything is different. But remember, you're not perfect. It doesn't mean you're not going to sin again. But see, the pattern of your sins are gone. You're never going to be caught in the pattern of sinning and sinning and sinning and loving it and not wanting to get out of it a christian sins and they hate it because they love christ more and the more they put down their sin the more they love christ and the more they want to be with him the more they want more of christ why because we know the only thing that's keeping us from the presence of god are these bodies right but God wants to use us here and keep us here until he's done with us. So he has something for you to do. And that's where we're going in the next section of Scripture. God has created you for good works. He has something for everyone in his kingdom to do. 
Do you know what that is? It could be that you don't know what it is because you haven't yet grasped that you've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light and that God has actually given you something to do. So being a Christian is not to have a nice, comfortable feeling inside of you But it's to enter the kingdom of God. It's to enter the kingdom of Christ. It is to enter into the realm where God completely and absolutely rules you with love and mercy. To be a Christian means to be taken out of the horrible darkness, out of a life of sin and the shame of evil. And to begin, to be, really to begin a new life, to begin a new start, it means now you belong to him. You belong to Jesus. For Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. When is that? That's now. That's right now. It is the realm of light and of glory and of holiness and of purity and of peace everlasting. It's the inheritance of the saints. So see, that's what God's done for us. That's who you are now. You see how different it is in contrast to who you were? It's completely different. Matter of fact, it's so different. As I put them up in front of the other, I can decide which one do I want. And of course, a believer says, that first one, I don't want anymore. I want the second one. I want the one where Christ dominates, where Christ rules. I want the one where I serve a merciful and a loving and a kind God who is for me and has done these things in my behalf and has transferred me from one place to another and no one can transfer me back. I'm heading to glory land. But while I'm here and while you're here, God wants to use you as one of his servants to bring light into this dark world and give them the gospel of Christ, the only thing that could save. You know, in the missionary uh, movies that we're watching in Sunday school. I, I do. I really do love this guy's this guy's um, mode of operation for evangelism. Pray. What's the second one? Meet people and tell them about Jesus. Period. I like keep it simple, man. Right. That's it. That's it. M- pray for people, meet people, and then tell them about the only thing they really need is they need Christ because they're in darkness and they don't know it. They're dead, they don't know it. They don't know it. And you didn't know it. So if you are a believer, then praise and worship God today for it. If you are not a believer, if you are not a believer today and you know it, then repent of your sins. Jesus says the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent is a conscious 
recognition that you're a sinner and that you are turning to a Savior who can forgive your sins and make you right with God and reconcile you to himself. And nothing else could do that. No one else could do that except Christ himself. So believe in Jesus. Ask him to be the Lord of your life today. And that's what he does. He came to seek and to save that which is lost. And all God's people said what? Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for your word. I pray, Lord, that it would strike home to our hearts. I pray, Lord, even this week, we would think about it, and we would think about what new position we have in Christ Jesus, and that how we could have, we could have never done anything to get there, but by Christ's power, we are there. And I pray, Lord, that it would make us worship you. I pray, Lord, that it would make us humble. I pray, Lord, that it would help us to think about where we live now, what realm we live in. And I pray, Lord, that we would realize we're no longer what we used to be, but we are made new in Christ. And because of that, Lord, give us that overwhelming desire to serve you in some capacity, to use our gifts, to bring light to the darkness of our families and the darkness that's on our jobs and the darkness that is uh, in the colleges. I pray, Lord, the gospel would go everywhere because now we hold the light. We have the message of the gospel that opens up the door to a relationship with God through Christ Jesus. I pray that you would help us to see those things and think about those things every day. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.